So, with that note, we will begin. Um, and as I hope, I hope nobody went home and beat themselves up for not being 100% an emotional coach. <laughs> there, there is one in every class. There is. <laughs> there is. There is one in every class. It never fails. And so, we, we will... Tonight, what we're going to cover is there's basically, and, and remember, this is not according to me. This is according to the author of the book. There, there are five key factors that, that will help you be an emotional coach. There's five steps, rather, okay? Um, so according to this author, we're going to cover those steps tonight. And each of those five steps are going to guide you through the process of applying what he learned over the course of those 20 years of study to helping us raise our children, okay, as us being emotional coaches. Um, so because th there is one thing that is at the heart of being an emotional coach, and that is empathy. Empathy is the heart of an emotional coach. And so briefly before I talk about empathy, I want to talk about its brother, sympathy, because they're not the same thing. A lot of people get them confused, but they are not the same that they're related, but they are, in fact, very different. Um, just like Genevieve and Amelia, just like if you have multiple children, you know your children came from the same parents, but they're very different. So sympathy and empathy are very different. Um, they're not interchangeable. A lot of us think that we can just kind of interchange them, right, when we're talking about how we feel for somebody, that he was empathetic, he was sympathetic. They're not, you can't plug and play each, okay? Um, so the most basic difference between sympathy and empathy is, in fact, emotion. Here you can see why empathy then plays a critical role in emotional coaching because it is built on emotion. And so sympathy is when I can understand your suffering, but empathy is when I can feel your suffering. Sympathy typically happens when sisters say, well, you've been through a situation or you're in a situation I've never been in. I can feel sorry for you, but I can't feel your sorrow because I've never experienced your struggle, right? But when I've been there, when I've walked through that walk, when I've been through that same trial and tribulation, I can then say, Brother Trevor, I feel your pain because I've been there. Okay, so that's, that, that is empathy. Sympathy, if you can feel it because it's emotion, think empathy, E-M, emotion. You can feel it, okay? That makes sense to everybody? Okay, so the ability, so this is the foundation. Empathy is the foundation of emotional coaching, and we're going to cover that briefly before we get into those five steps. So emotion coaching, empathy, the ability to feel what the other person is feeling. And so a good way to think about it is empathy is having the ability to basically, in this case, since we're talking about parenting, empathy is the ability to put yourself in your child's shoes, okay? And, and, and so we're, and being able then also to respond accordingly based on what you feel. As empathetic parents, when we see our child crying, when we see our child in tears, we can put ourselves in their shoes. We, we know and we feel. No, we don't only feel sorry for them, but we then begin to feel that sorrow, okay? So seeing our children stomp their feet in anger, we can feel their frustration. Poor Amelia, like, she is so frustrated right now, like, because stuff's going on at school, like you say, Sister Soriano, and she's like, why can't I go? Like, well, because they closed your school, because somebody had, somebody got the Rona, 
And so, and she, like all day long, crying, frustrated. And so I've been, both of us, I've noticed both of us trying to put in practice what we're learning from this book and saying, I understand you're frustrated. I'm so sorry. I know you really wanted to go to school, but there's, we're going to make the best of this. I said, you can't go anyways. They didn't even open. You can't go. As bad as we want you to go because we're trying to work and we've got a four-year-old and we want you to be there and you want to be there, you can't go. So, I mean, that, that I feel like is empathy, right? We, like seeing your child being just, fr- I mean, to the point of tears throughout the day, I just won't go to school. And it's like, man, it's like, one, I'm really glad my kid likes school that much, right? But that's empathy, amen? So here, here's what happens. When you feel empathy, it gives credibility, <clears throat> excuse me, or credence to their experiences and you help them learn to soothe themselves. When your child's frustrated and you say, you stop being that way, that makes them feel like they can't be frustrated. But when you say, hey, I understand why you're frustrated, <clears throat> that's, that tells them, oh, what I'm feeling, it's okay. It's acceptable for me to feel this way. My, my feelings are justified. I'm not wrong in how I'm feeling, okay? Because this is all about feeling. Remember, behavior is something completely different than feeling. <clears throat> Empathy is very powerful because it allows children to see, our, see their parents as an ally and not an enemy. When we seek to understand our children's experience, they feel like we're supporting them because they feel like we're on their side. Does that make sense? And so when they begin to express emotion, one thing that we have to make sure we don't do is criticize. We have to refrain from criticizing, and this includes discounting their feelings, kind of shrugging off their feelings, trying to brush it off, hey, get over it, deal with it, whatever, suck it up. You know, all of those phrases that kind of mean the same thing, right? When we do this, what happens is they, they, they let us come into their world, and they open up to you. They begin to say, yes, I am frustrated, and it's because I couldn't go to school today. It's because X, Y, and Z, right? Does that make sense? They're, they're, just, they're just willing to open up and really talk to their parents. And I think, I think everyone in this room would agree that a relationship with a child where you can openly communicate is very important. They're not trying to hide things from you. They're not going behind your back to do things. It's just everything is open, okay? So when they let us into their world, they will be open with us about how they feel. They'll offer opinions. Their motivations become to us less mysterious because you know what motivates them. You know what drives them. You know kind of what their intentions are. And there's a better understanding between parent and child and a a different level of trust gets built in that relationship. So empathy, it, it might sound simple. It might be a simple concept to understand, but it's not always easy to practice because as parents, we do get frustrated. And it's at a level of frustration that your kid just has no idea about. But so it's, it's not easy to do. It's easy to kind of comprehend and think about and rationalize. Hey, that's empathy. That's empathy. This is what I should do. But it's much different, much more difficult to actually do it. So tonight, what we're going to cover is these five steps that will help you hopefully build empathy into your relationship with your child. And it'll help enhance their, I said their emotional intelligence. Okay. Yeah, criticizing. Thank you, Brother Patrick. So again, according to Dr. Gottman's studies, they showed that for parents, 
to feel what their children are feeling, we must first be aware of our emotions ourselves. Does that make sense? For us to be an emotional coach and for us to have empathy, true empathy for our kids, we have to become emotionally aware. This is sadness, this is anger, this is frustration, this is jealousy, and these are different appropriate ways to behave when I feel these feelings, okay? So first in us, then in our kids, and his research also showed that people can be emotionally aware and hence well-equipped for emotion coaching without being someone that is highly expressive of their emotions. So you don't have to be a very emotional person. When we say emotional, you understand what I mean, that that means someone that openly shows how they feel, right? You don't have to be that kind of a touchy-feely person to be an emotional coach. So nobody gets disqualified from being an emotional coach, which is comforting, right? Because not everybody, we'll talk about it here, not everybody is a very emotional person. Okay, some people are a little bit more reserved, but that doesn't mean you can't be an emotional coach. So um, you can be an emotional coach without being highly expressive or without feeling like you're going to lose control. Okay, so in moving forward, let's assume that all of us in this room are very self-aware. We're aware of our emotions, and we know how to display them properly. Even if we don't, we're going to pretend we do, okay? And if we don't, we're going to work on that for the sake of us and for the sake of our children. All right, so step number one, the highly, highly awaited and anticipated step number one, being aware of your child's emotions. Emotional awareness means that you recognize when you are feeling an emotion, okay? You can identify your feelings, and you are sensitive to the presence of the emotions in other people. There are factors that play a role in someone's comfort level when it comes to expressing emotions. There are cultural factors. For example, Italian people, Hispanic people are generally, and I say generally because it's not everybody, but generally more outwardly open with displaying emotion. You know, very, they can get very animated. They talk with their hands. And you more, normally, Sister Soriano, Brother Soriano, probably doesn't normally question how you feel. <laughs> Makes sense, right? I mean, in general, that, that's, that's very true from my experience in my life also. However, on the other side, Japanese people, Scandinavian people, are generally more inhibited and stoic. They're raised in a culture where you don't show emotion. You just, your, your expression for sadness, your expression for joy, you're saying, you know, it's like, man, I just told this guy he won a million dollars and <laughs> get excited, brother. You know, like, come on, like, like show some emotion, you know, or, or hey, man, you, you just, your dad just died. It's the same, same emotion that gets displayed. They're not, bro, I hope not. <laughs> but here, let me tell you this. While outwardly there may be differences, Cultural influences do not affect a person's ability to feel. What's going on on the outside doesn't always show what's going on on the inside. Okay? Everybody feels. I don't care what they tell you. Everybody feels something. It's just they get, some people are up here with how they display. Some people are down here with how they display. But everybody feels. Amen? 
So men and women, now the guy said yes, have a different way of showing emotion. It's just the way God made us. But it's also the way culture has influenced us. Okay? Men and women, though, do have a similar internal experience of emotion. The study even found that men are just as capable of empathizing and responding to emotion as women. So while the internal experience is similar, the external response could be quite different. And I know I just surprised everybody in the room. All the wives said, So, am I going to surprise anybody if I say men tend to hide their emotions from the outside world and that women are generally freer to express theirs? Even in society, it's more acceptable for a woman to be emotional than for a man. Am I right? Men do this because they are socialized for toughness and are, I think, more weary or more aware of possibly the consequences for getting, quote, out of control. Okay? For losing our cool, losing our temple, whatever however you want to call it, right? Men, I think, have to be, for some reason, or we are, no, not that we have to be, but we are just more aware or more in tune with that possibility. Again, kind of because of how we're wired. So, men tend to hold back. We tend to cover up or even perhaps discount our feelings. Yet again, this does not discount them from being an emotional coach. So, even if you are a very stoic person, that doesn't display your emotion, you can still be an emotional coach. Everybody in this room qualifies. Yay. So, moving on, they, they can be internally aware of their feelings. They have the ability to recognize and respond to their children's feelings. Just because someone, again, doesn't show emotion doesn't mean they don't recognize it in someone else. For most men, becoming emotionally aware is not a matter of picking up a new skill. It is a matter of granting yourself permission to experience what's already there. So, men, I give you permission to respond to your emotions. And now you need to do yourself the same favor. You know, find a place alone, get into the mirror, and look yourself in the eyes and say, Ash, you have permission to respond and be emotional. Permission to feel, it might be an issue for parents who are afraid of losing control when emotions get negative, such as anger, sadness, or fear. Such parents often avoid acknowledging their anger in particular for fear that things will get out of hand and the fear of alienating their children or that their children may copy their emotional style and then spinning out of control themselves. Such parents may also fear hurting their children physically or psychologically. Characteristics of parents who felt out of control with an emotion. Here's kind of like a bullet list of these characteristics. They have the emotion of anger, sadness, or fear frequently. They believe that they feel it. Now notice I said they believe they feel it too intensely. They have trouble calming down after experiencing intense feelings. They become disorganized and have trouble functioning when they have the emotion. They hate the way they behave when they are experiencing the emotion. Now I'm going to kind of highlight that a little bit. You can't help the fact that you feel it, but you can help how you act about it. They are always on guard against that feeling. Brother Travis, if you have a tendency to just really get angry, 
you 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 have an extra kind of level of attention to getting angry right i mean it it just becomes something that you pay attention to so they find themselves trying to act neutral being calm being understanding being sympathetic but it's only an act it's an outward display of them trying to be very neutral they feel like they need help with the emotion and i'm going to say it again you don't need help with the emotion you need help with how you show it what can parents who fear losing control do to feel more capable of engaging with their children concerning emotional issues number one remember it's okay to express your anger if your child does something that makes you mad it is a hundred percent okay to let your kid know you did something that really made me mad it's okay matter of fact I encourage you to because how else are they gonna know if you're a stoic person and you don't show emotion and they made you really angry I mean I think sometimes kids do something just for a reaction and if they do it and they don't get one man he didn't even pay attention to me he didn't love me I mean it just goes down another slippery slope right and so it's okay for you to tell your kid, man, when you did X, Y, and Z, I really got mad. That really made me mad. Or like my dad used to do, that really disappointed me. That was crushing. The disappointment, that was disappointing. Okay? So the key is, though, that you're feeling, that you, that you express your feeling in a way that is not destructive to that relationship. Because here's what you're demonstrating. Two things, that strong feelings can be expressed and they can be managed and that your child's behavior does in fact really matter to you. You are paying attention and how they act matters. Okay, it helps you to be aware of your different levels of emotional arousal. Here you go. If you find that you're mad, but you can't continue to speak in a rational way to your child, you, which, what's that? You can't catch up? and managed your child's behavior really matters strong feelings no okay uh yeah let me go back they have the emotion anger sadness or fear frequently functioning That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Destructive. Okay. They hate the way they act. Okay, caught up. All right. Okay. Okay. So here, here are some helps for you to be aware of when you're levels of emotion are kind of feeling like you're getting way out of control okay if you find that you're mad anybody been so mad you can't talk like you're like can't hold my tongue it's just it's gonna come out walk away if you find that you are mad but hold on let me back up i'm getting ahead of myself if you find that you are mad but you can continue to talk rationally to your child getting to some point of an understanding stay engaged in that conversation okay tell your child what's on your mind listen give them time to respond and listen to their response and keep talking 
if you find you're too angry that you can't think clearly, take a break. Take a break from the situation and go back to it when you feel less angry, but don't ignore it. Don't walk away and then just, ah, you know what, I'm not mad anymore, forget about it. No, make sure you go back and address it because they know you were mad and you're doing yourself and them a disservice if you don't bring it back up. Okay, lastly, parents should also retreat if they're on the verge of saying or doing destructive things, being sarcastic, making threats, making derogatory statements like you're an idiot, okay? I'm, I'm just saying, okay? Avoid name-calling because do you want your child name-calling you? You're just making the example. It's appropriate when I get mad to call names. It's what mommy and daddy do, so therefore I'm going to carry on that same behavior, right? Because what you're trying to do is build in them the proper response to emotions. You're coaching, right? And I'll get to when we make a mistake later, okay? Parents who fear losing control would do well to remember that there is healing power in forgiveness. And everybody said amen. Okay, all parents make mistakes occasionally or frequently, whatever the case may be. Some make more mistakes than others. Some make them more commonly than others, okay? And the, 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 the hope is that as we age and as we get better, we get down the road in this, we get a little better, right? Okay, but all of us make mistakes. We lose our tempers with our kids. We say or we do something we regret later. And let me just tell you from about the age of four, a child understands, truly understands what I'm sorry means. So when you make a mistake, take time to go back to your child and tell them, hey, look, I got mad and I got so mad that I said something, I did something I should not have and I am sorry. Because what you're also doing is showing them what they should do when they get so mad or so upset that they do something they're not supposed to that, hey, mommy and daddy did it, but when they did it, they came to me and they said they're sorry. I need to go apologize. Make sense? So keep in mind that your child craves intimacy and warmth with you. Your child wants to have a good relationship. And it is in their best interest to heal that relationship and give you lots of second chances. I don't think, besides Jesus, I don't know that there's anybody more gracious than a kid. They are quick to forgive. Okay? I mean, there's nothing a good little hug and a, I'm sorry. Don't fix. Or a piece of chocolate. <laughs> Where sorry fails, chocolate often overcomes. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's exactly right. Yes, ma'am. That. No. Yes, ma'am. Come unto me. Thank you, Sister Cooper. That is very true. Children are quick to forgive and forget. They're too little to carry grudges. You got to be like a child. So remember, forgiveness is a two-way street. And so it'll work best in a family where children are allowed to have to say, I'm sorry, too. If you're the only one that ever apologizes or is allowed to make a mistake where you need to apologize, there's an issue. Your children have to have leeway 
to make a mistake and apologize also. Okay, when you feel your heart go out to your child, when you know you are feeling what they are feeling, you are now experiencing empathy. When you, this is again, the foundation of being an emotional coach is empathy. If we can stay with our child in this emotion, even though at times the feeling may get difficult, it might get uncomfortable, we are able to take the next step, which is to recognize this emotional moment as a chance to build trust and to give guidance. So we've moved now, we have empathy, we're ready to go to step number two, recognizing this emotion as an opportunity for intimacy and teaching. It is said in Chinese, there's this ideogram which represents opportunity and inside that ideogram is the word crisis. So imagine you've got crisis, but it presents opportunity, okay? So I think when you think about it, that's parenthood. A crisis with your child presents you with an opportunity to show them what life is all about and how you respond to life appropriately. So I, 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 for the sake of time, I'm gonna skip a story that I was gonna include. Um, but I mean, things, things like a balloon popping, okay? To us, that may seem so trivial right? A balloon pop, but to a three-year-old, that can be devastating. It is. The world, the world is over. My, I remember at one of Genevieve's birthday parties, the balloons floated away because they got loose, and, and she, she was crushed, you know, but she was three, and now she's 10, and it probably wouldn't generate the same response, but, it, but, but you get where I'm going, right? I mean, so those kind of things, they, they, they serve us with opportunity to empathize with our children, like, hey, Genevieve, I remember a time when I was a little kid and this and this happened and it made me feel really sad too. You know, that, that's empathy, okay? And so it was found through this study that a child needs his parents most when he is sad, angry, or afraid. And I might add that I don't think there's ever a time or a place where you can feel more like a parent when you can try and soothe your child when they're angry, sad, or upset. I mean, that, that's probably the best mom or dad moment to feel like a mom or dad is when your kid is brokenhearted and you can calm them, you can soothe them, you can comfort them, right? So by acknowledging our children's emotions, we are helping them learn skills to soothe themselves because eventually that's what we want them to be able to do because they're not always gonna live in mommy and daddy's house. They're, they're gonna grow up, they're gonna become a, an adult and they're gonna have emotions and they're gonna have to learn at some point in time to be able to sue themselves, right? They've just got to. And so emotions um, don't just go away, right? You, you can ignore a child's negative feelings and hope they'll go away, but they're not gonna just go away. Negative feelings will dissipate though when you're able to talk, talk to your child about the emotion. Ignoring it doesn't fix it, but talking about it does. And so, because what happens is a child may feel something, Sister Sayward, but they don't know how to call it, right? They won't know, I'm crying, but I don't know why. And you could say, well, do you feel sad? Yes, that's what I feel. And so when, when you're able to put a label or a sticker on something, it kind of gives you this level of comfort, right? Because now I've got a name for it. There is this something that I can discuss by name. It's not some, some strange feeling that I can't describe or 
or, or describe, and, and, but I've got a name for it. I can call it something. And so it just brings this level of comfort. And so it brings them uh, to a place of this, where they're able to acknowledge these low levels of emotion before they get to a place of a full-blown crisis. Because now they're not feeling strange or not feeling weird. They know what I feel. I feel sad. I feel sad because today my balloon popped. And so it doesn't get to full down meltdown, you know, as it might have the first time, but you worked with that child, you coached that child. And then so the next time they feel this sadness, they like, I felt this before. It's like, they're not actually, I mean, obviously they're not verbalizing this, but your mind is kind of rationalizing these things. I felt this before. It's because of this, I feel sad. Oh, the last time I was sad, I did this and it made me feel better. And so that's what we're working towards. Um, so also, um, if we can address these things at the onset, it'll give us a chance um, to practice our listening and problem-solving skills when those stakes are small, before they become a crisis, okay? When it's a much smaller problem to fix, okay? So if you express an interest and concern over your child's broken toy or a minor cut or scrape, these moments act like building blocks to where something big happens. They know, man, mom and dad are there for me. When I have a big issue in my life, I know that I can go to them because I've got all of these. It's like when God helps you with something, you know, you, you just develop this confidence and this trust in him. It's like he's, you know, you kind of build these memorials and these monuments, right? That, man, I can look back on 10 years ago, this and this happened and man, God really made a way. And now I'm facing the same kind of a thing. I know he'll do it again. It's kind of like that. As we, we as parents, when we do this with our kids, you're building them memorials and monuments that they can look back upon and say, man, mom and dad are really there for me. They've really helped me out, and I know that I've got this problem. I've not had this kind of a problem before, but they've never let me down. They might have been disappointed in me, but we got through it, and so I need to go to them again. All right, so, so my point being that when that big crisis happens, you're able to face it together. They're not trying to face it alone because you've proven to them you're there for them. Okay, step three, listening emphatically and validating the child's feelings. Once you can see that a problem presents an opportunity to build intimacy and teach problem solving, now you are ready for perhaps the most important step in the emotion coaching process, empathetic listening. So in this context, you know, we often think I'm listening. You're, you're just, you're hearing and you're processing, but this goes way beyond just collecting data with your ears. So empathetic listeners will use their eyes to watch for physical evidence of their child's emotion as they're talking. That empathetic listener is going to use their imagination to try and see the situation from their child's perspective. And they're going to use words to reflect back in a soothing, non-critical way what they're healing, hearing, and then help their child label those emotions that they're feeling. So most importantly, what we're going to do as an empathetic listener is we're going to engage our heart so that we can feel what our child is feeling. So when discussing feelings, I will note something the author called out and, and I've found it to be true that you cannot apply logic often to a child. I mean, you can't apply logic hardly to an adult that's irrational <laughs> or, or that's just so mad they become irrational, right? Logic just doesn't work, right? So, so toss trying to be logical out the window when you're trying to interact with a child at this level because what you wanna do is, is it's better just to listen. Just, just tune your ear in, tune your eyes in, tune your heart in, and listen. Because as you listen, 
for that emotional moment, you're going to be aware that sharing those simple observations usually work better than trying to dig in and ask probing questions. Under certain circumstances, an interrogation may, help, may make a child clam up and just stop, just shut their mouth. They kind of, they still feel the way they feel. They're still expressing it, but they just stop talking altogether. And that's not the goal here. We want them to talk. We want them to be open. Um, so instead, we should ask questions that just make them kind of reflect. What made you sad? Like, because you can tell when your child's sad, what made you sad? Or what made you feel that way? What made you feel so upset? What happened today that made you in a bad mood when you got in the car? What happened? Just ask them because children are going to generally want to talk about it. It may not immediately come out, but eventually they're, they're going to want to. They're going to want to, they're going to get to a place where they feel comfortable you know, and if we're doing our job, they'll be in that place of comfort and just talking to us about their issues, okay? So tuning into your child's emotions requires you to pay attention to their body language, to their facial expression, and their gestures. For example, what does it mean if I furrow my brow? Or I clench my jaw? I mean, they're, they're verbal, they're, they're facial cues, they're, they're visual cues, right? Or... I mean, you can see when a child's eyes are welling up. They're not at the point of crying, but it's there. Or you can see that little lip quiver. There, there's, some, there's some frustration or there's some sadness there. And so our goal, because our children can also read our body language, our goal is to keep our body language neutral. You know, the art of negotiation, they talk about when you fold your arms, you cross your arms, you're immediately pushing off that person. You're immediately blocking out what they have to say. And so you want to be open with your expression to what they're, to what they're saying. Um, so because you want to have a relaxed and calm conversation, make sure that your tone and your body language both say so. Your tone can say one thing, but your body language can say something completely different. Another effective way to demonstrate your understanding of what they're feeling is to share examples from your own life. Times that made you sad, times that made you angry times that made you upset and what you did, how you reacted. So number four, help the child verbally label emotions. We kind of delved into this a little bit. So one easy and extremely important step in emotion coaching is to help children put a label on it. Children may not have the vocabulary to verbally label their emotions, especially the first time they're feeling something and they're obviously able to talk. So as parents, our job is to help them define their feeling, okay? Define what they're feeling. Help them get to a place. Words like hurt, sad, worried, afraid, tense can help children transfer something that they're not familiar with into something that they're more comfortable with and something that may be scary that they've never felt before and has never made them like you know what I'm saying? Like if you've never felt a certain way before and you're kind of like, I mean, that just adds a whole other level of complexity to the emotion, right? Because now you're uncertain. But if I know what to call it, again, I go back to that. If I know what to call what I'm feeling, it, it makes it not so scary because now it's definable. Something now that this fear has a boundary, this sadness has a boundary and it has a limitation. It kind of fits in a box. Um, so it shows children that these emotions and experiences are something that everyone feels, that they're not strange, they're not odd for feeling sad. 
they're not the only one ever in the world to be afraid of something. It's something that all of us experience. So labeling their emotion goes hand in hand with empathy. Studies show that the act of labeling emotions can have a soothing effect on the nervous system, helping children recover more quickly from an upsetting accident. Just being able to call it something helps them recover more quickly. Isn't that amazing? Just having a word for sadness or fear or anger, disappointment, regret, whatever it is, helps them get over and helps them soothe themselves quicker. Kids who calm themselves from an early age show several signs of emotional intelligence. Listen to these. They are more likely to concentrate better. They have better peer relationships. They have higher academic achievement and better overall health. Who would have thought? I mean, it's amazing that God, as our emotional coach, wants us to be an emotional coach because look at the benefits. So Dr. Gottman's advice to parents is to help your kids find words to describe what they're feeling. This doesn't mean telling them what they ought to feel, but helping them describe what they are feeling. Well, because, again, we go back to certain situations make us feel differently just because it made you feel this way. They may not feel the same way, right, Sister Cooper? And so if I'm angry about it and they're crying, I say, oh, you're angry. And they're like, oh, when I cry, that means I'm angry. No, they're not feeling the same thing. So it's your job to help them describe how they feel not how you think they should feel. Being able to verbally label emotions, it gives them reassurance that what they are experiencing is normal. There is something comforting. Again, I keep saying that. There's something just comforting about having a definition, a label for something. Okay, now, setting limits while helping the children problem solve. For small children especially, problem solving often starts with a parent who sets limits on what inappropriate behavior is. It is important for children to understand that their feelings are not the problem, their misbehavior is. I'm going to say that one more time. It is important for children to understand that their feelings are not the problem, their misbehavior is. All feelings and all wishes are acceptable, but not all behaviors are. Therefore, as parents, it is our job to set limits on the behavior or on the act and not the feeling. So what kind of behaviors should a parent limit? There is no hard, fast rule. I wish I could say, don't let them do this, don't let them do this, don't let them do this. But even this guy that studied these kids for 20 years can't tell you this and this don't fit, this does, this does, here's the box, put them in here. No, there is no box. Because why? Everybody's kids are different. Everybody's families are different. Everybody's values are to some extent different, right? And so what works in one house may not work in your house. And so you've got to essentially develop your own set of limitations and boundaries when raising kids, okay? But here is a note, a very important note, is we have to accept the childishness of children. I've got to accept the fact that my four-year-old is going to at times act like a four-year-old. She's going to come home from school dirty, the mirror is going to get toothpaste and whatever else all over it is because she's four, right? We, we've got to accept the fact that they are children and they're going to act like it, okay? So allowing these kinds of behaviors will bring them confidence and an increased capacity to express feelings and thoughts. And so real quick, I'm going to hit these three behavior zones. There's a green zone. 
This is behavior that's sanctioned and it's desired. It's the way you want your children to act. And so you grant them permission in that zone to be free. Okay? Yellow. This is misbehavior that's not sanctioned, but it's tolerated. And there are two very specific reasons you will tolerate it. One is you give them leeway because they're learning. So it's kind of like the learning curve. Again, I go back to a four-year-old who will have a hard time sitting quiet through two-hour-long church service. She's four. But by the time she's 10, I expect that she'll be better at it. Make sense? So you give them leeway. You give them a learning curve. Okay? The next one is there's leeway for hard times. When they're sick, when they're extra tired, when they're extra frustrated because school's closed, you give them a little bit of more of a boundary, right, for their misbehavior because you understand, hey, they're just above and beyond normal, okay? It's not acceptable on a perfect day, but on a day like today, this is acceptable. I'll tolerate it, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, you may not approve of either of these types of behavior, and your child should know this, but you might tolerate it, letting them know it is because of the unusual circumstances. Red zone behavior will not be tolerated no matter what. This includes activities that are dangerous to the well-being of your child or others. It includes illegal behaviors or behaviors that you would consider immoral, unethical, or just socially unacceptable, period. Okay? Whew, man. Do we need to just get to the panel? Because there is, I got like a good page left to go. It's finished. Okay. So well, let's talk about real quick about problem solving because once you've listened emphatically, empathetically rather, you've labeled their feeling, you've set limits on inappropriate behavior, the next step is to identify goals on how to solve the problem. Um, so you got the green, the, the yellow, the red. Ask your child what they want to accomplish with the problem at hand. What is your goal? Okay, it can be a simple fix. My kite is lopsided and it won't fly anymore. Okay, so the goal is to fix the kite, okay? Or my math problem is confounding me. I can't figure it out. I need help, okay? Call Sister Mia. <laughs> it can be something complicated. It could be after a fight with a best friend. But we've all been there and we've done that. We figured out how to get through it. Hey, I'm really sorry that they treated you this way and, and that this was done and that et cetera, et cetera. But let's figure out how to prevent that from happening in the future. Um, there may no, not be an immediate solution. Your pet died. I mean, you can't bring that cat back to life, okay? But you can teach your child how to grieve. So then you can think of possible solutions that you work with your child to come up with options for solving the problem without you taking over. I know as parents, we have a tendency to take over. Don't try to take over, guide them. You're coaching, right? You're not the player, you're the coach. Coach them through the process. Encourage them to come up with their own ideas, giving them assistance where it's needed. And of course, this will be very dependent upon your child's age. As they get older, they'll need less and less help, hopefully, in figuring out solutions and kind of rationally thinking. Um, so then you can evaluate proposed solutions based on your values. You can go over each idea that you've come up with, decide which ones won't work immediately, and kind of eliminate those by process of elimination. And then you can encourage your child to consider each solution separately, asking these questions. Is this a fair solution? Will this solution work? 
very importantly, is it safe? How are you likely to feel afterwards? And how are other people likely to feel? Because we want them to learn it's not all about me. My actions do affect other people's emotions and feelings, and so that is a part of this process. Okay, and then help you child choose a solution. Once you and your child have explored the ramifications of various choices, encourage them to select a couple of options and try them out one at a time. As they fail, cross it off, move on to the next one. So we want to encourage our kids to think for themselves, but it is good at times to offer your own opinions, your own feedback, your own guidance. Don't be afraid to tell them how you've handled a situation in the past that was similar. And what did you learn from it? What mistakes did you make? And while you, are, while you want to help your children make good decisions, keep in mind that children also learn from their mistakes. I think mistakes are sometimes the best teacher, right? Where would we be if we hadn't failed before? Okay, praise the Lord. We have time for a little bit of panel. Yes, ma'am. All right, panel, if you would, please join us. While the panel is coming up here, I wanted to explain the last few pages of y'all's handout. Um, so um, instead of making y'all take another test during the, the uh, session today, uh, we just put it in at the end for you to do at um, home um, on your own. But what it is, um, is it's, if you remember, um, if you remember from uh, when Brother Jonathan was talking about empathy, um, he was talking about being aware of your own emotions. And so what this is, is um, it's a test about, um, or a self-test about um, your awareness of anger, um, as well as sadness, how you kind of rate on that. And um, uh, you just answer it true, false, or don't know. Try not to answer it as don't know, um, but if you really truly don't know, then you know answer it don't know. But I put on there instructions of how to um, score yourself, and um, it's very similar. Well, it's not similar actually. Um, it's uh, I'll just explain it really fast. Um, the first column, you're going to add up the number of trues in the whole first column. And then you'll add up the number of trues in the whole second column. For each one, there's going to be two separate scores. Um, and then you're going to subtract the second column from the first column. It's there. Um, so, but if y'all need help, call me, text me, whatever. Um, I'll help you. Um, or catch me on Sunday. Um, and then there's a little bit of an explanation um, about um, that on the last page. Um, but of course, you know, if y'all want to know like even more than what we've shared um, so far and even next week, then, you know, um, we can get you the name of the book and all that stuff too for, cause there's like way more in the book than what we're sharing. We can't possibly cover the whole thing um, in three weeks. Um, okay, so 
Uh, did everybody enjoy the panel uh, last week? Absolutely. I did too. Um, so um, we're going to get through as many as um, we can today. And whatever we don't get through, we will cover next week along with some others. Okay. Um, if my questions will show up. One moment. to do it from memory if I if it won't show up. Okay, uh, they're not showing up. Are you there showing up on yours? Can you check it? Okay. I got it right here. Do you have all the questions all for me? Okay, while you're pulling that up, I think I remember the first one. It was for Sister Angela, I believe. And what it is is, so how, Sister Angela, in your opinion or in your experience, um, can we, um, do we deal with sibling, sibling rivalry? How do we handle that? I can tell you what I've learned and what you should do. That's fine. Um, go get a switch. No. <laughs> or... <laughs> Pretty much. It's a solution for it all. No. Um, so just expect it. I mean, when, when my kids were little, I was like, why are they fighting? I mean, what do you have to fight about? And I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong? Well, you're actually not doing anything wrong. <laughs> it's just part of life. So they're, they're fighting for their right to be there because they're part of that family and now there's two or three or five, you know, <laughs> however many. And, um, and so, I mean, kids are, that's just part of life. It's called problem solving. And um, they're gonna learn how to um, just, how to process things, you know, what's right, what's wrong, how you treat somebody, that's what they learn in the home. And um, so I kind of wrote some things down, so I'm looking up so I don't forget. Um, okay, so basically don't show favoritism. That's the number one thing. Don't ever do that. Um, because your kids are your kids, and you want to love them unconditionally like God loves us. Um, so you want them to feel that, so that way when they do face circumstances, they know they're going to be loved. They're not going to feel you know, rejected or less than they're going to feel I may have made a mistake but I'm still loved and I can I can make it through this and that's what you want for them um, they are all individual so everybody processes things differently one might be louder and more rambunctious I'm not saying any names like Austin but <laughs> um, uh, I mean they're, they're just all different you know um, more boys, I have all boys, so um, I think they tend to be more rambunctious and rowdy and, yeah. And so, I mean, and, you know, maybe some girls do that, I don't know. But um, everybody's different. Um, basically, you have to have some rules to set in place. What are your values? What do you value? What do you, you know, what are some things that we don't cross that line? You know, we don't treat people that way. Um, 
It don't matter if it's your brother, sister, whoever. You don't treat people that way. Um, you're kind. You, you have to learn um, to forgive because your brother may have hit you and he was mad at that time and you're going to have to learn to forgive him and he's going to learn how to stop. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, and to encourage them to forgive, basically. Um, these kids, I mean, when they learn those, the problem solving, when they're fighting over a toy, I'm trying to think of things when they were younger, you know. Um, but things get a lot harder when they get older. <laughs> and things are out of your control. So you got to teach them, you know, yes, they can make mistakes. One thing I have on my fridge in my home, and, and I looked at it one day, I was like, I need to change that just a little bit. But it says, we make our choices, right? Everybody, every one of us, from the day we're born, well, you know, we start walking, whatever, we make a choice. Whatever we choose that day, that moment, and our choices mold and shape us. But you can change your choices. So you can, you can do what you want, do what's right. Just because you messed up, and that's what, you know, every one of us, we got to think about when we've done a mistake, do we feel rejected because or ashamed? Well, there is part of shame, not shame, but just conviction. But you got to let your child know that he may feel convicted, and that's kind of like that process of knowing what you're feeling. Like, how are you feeling? Um, do you feel ashamed? Well, maybe you don't feel ashamed. Maybe you feel convicted. Because conviction, godly sorrow, worketh repentance, right? It brings us closer to God. And so be thankful for that conviction and let them know it's good to feel sorrow. It's good to feel, you know, sadness because through that you can learn to forgive or you can learn to repent. You can learn to grow in what God wants you to be. And um, so anyway, um, let's see, I think I have one more. And also images versus reality. So, I mean, we have this, if we have images in our head of what things should be, they're not always what they really are. <laughs> so, you got to learn. And I remember crying at the table, praying, and my kids, you know, just, just life. And God told me, and he's always told me, he said, it's a process. It's a process. So, to give your child hope, that they can make it through and they can choose to do what's right. And no matter how many times they fall, they will get back up. And they will be victorious because they have a God that's fighting for them just like you are fighting for them. There. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Angela. Okay. Um, all right. Our second question, we actually have two people um, that are going to give you their perspective on this and their experience. So first we'll start with Sister Cooper. So from your experience, what did you do or, or what would you do if you didn't have this um, issue? Um, if your child didn't want or was reluctant to come to church and or participate in church activities? Well, first of all, 
I, I jotted down a couple of things because uh, in my lifetime as parenting, a lot of things has come up as far as, you know, not with my own children because what I did with my own children was, first of all, you know, I showed them an example. It starts with the parent also, not with just with the child because the child has to have an, have an example. But one thing I did at home was no matter what happened, I always made sure that I showed them that you have to go to church. And I always told them the truth at an early age. You will be judged because you are supposed to be faithful. And if you want to stay at home, that's not a choice because I'm responsible for you. I know sometimes it seems kind of hard and kind of strong, but if you're not hard, sort of hard and strong with your kid and tell your kid the truth, then you're just molding and shaping an adult that's going to be very rebellious, not just in marriage or just going to church, just a person that's going back into society is going to be, just, you know, you're going to be a problem. And that's one thing you don't want. You, the Bible says that if you correct a child, then he will make you happy. And, you know, sometimes people don't do that. And then they'll say, well, uh, I wonder why my child, you know, don't want to participate in an activity or do something at church. Well, start with yourself, self, start brainstorming. Did I show them an example of being a good Christian? Was I faithful to God myself? And also uh, a life experience was a lady on my job, she knew that I was a Christian and uh, she had a daughter and I never will forget her, her name was Wendy. And so uh, she had bought her a Jeep. And so um, she talked to me and I said, you know what, she's a brat. I said, because uh, she asked me my opinion. And I told her, I said, she's a brat. I said, she don't deserve a Jeep. And she said, Michelle, she said, why? I said, because she don't do nothing you say. I said, and she gets all these expensive gifts. I said, but just remember, Margaret, you asked me. Okay, so she took this Jeep and went out at Texoma Parkway. I mean, Texoma, um, yes. And so she had a wreck. And so I was so disturbed because Margaret bought the pictures to work. And she showed her daughter being like 15 or 16 years old. So what it did, it scalped her from her eyebrows all the way back to her neck. And she, I said, my God. I said, Margaret, I said, that's terrible. So she said, will you go to the hospital and pray for her? I said, absolutely. And so uh, when I went to the hospital, it was a, a miraculous experience. It scared me to death. When I got there, it was like, I don't know, a presence of the Lord was there, and they wouldn't let nobody in that room, but they let me in it, so uh, in the room. And so when I got there, I, I uh, was, like I said, I was afraid, because like I said, she got scalped, and that, that, I mean, I had fear in my heart. I said, oh, God, I just can't handle it. But I did go, I was obedient. I went head on and prayed for him, so I touched her toes, and I prayed for her. And so she got better during the week, and so she was still a brat and rebellious. So Margaret come to me. She goes, Michelle, she said, will you talk to Wendy? She said, she respects you. Because I always told her, you know, what was, you know, I just talked to her like I was talking to one of my kids. Mm -hmm. And so she said, she's going to leave tonight from the hospital because some friends are going to a um, concert. She said, can you stop her from going? I said, absolutely. That's up my alley. So um, I went up there and I talked to her. I said, look, let me tell you something. I said, you've been in a wreck. I said, you almost died. I said, now, why you want to drive your mama crazy? You talking about you going to leave the hospital? I said, leave. See, don't the police pick you up? And so she, <laughs> and so she said, 
you know what, Michelle, I'm going to do what you say, say, and I'm not going to go. I said, good. I said, because you're a child. I said, you're not the boss. And so uh, she listened to me. And another incident just happened in this church. Uh, Mary, she always called me mom, and she's from uh, Oklahoma. And so her twin girl turned 18 years old. So she's been begging her, come to church, come to church. She's, and so she came to me. She said, you know what? She said, Haley, just respect you and love you. I said, really? I said, great. And so um, I, she said, will you talk to her about coming to church? I said, absolutely. So I went up there and I told her, I said, I used another tactic. I said, you're so beautiful and she is pretty. I said, now why is it that you won't come to church? I said, you're going to come. Aren't you? She said, yeah, she showed up last week. But uh, one thing uh, I like to tell the parents, it's not, it, it's not hard. Just be real. And, you know, people can tell out in the world, even when you're trying to win a soul, if you're real or not. Don't you know a child loves boundaries? And they love it when you love them with their problems. And if you don't love them while they got a problem, you're going to have a problem when they get to be 35 years old. One thing an old black woman told me when I was just a, I probably was 18. This is what she told me as a word of, of advice is getting married. She said, let me tell you something, honey. She said, one thing about having children, she had eight children. She said, just remember, if you don't raise them right, when they get to be adults and 35 years old, they'll come to you still with a problem that they can't handle because somebody didn't tell them exactly what the deal was on life. And, that, and that, that is, that's, that's really, really true. And one thing when you say reluctant, one thing I thought about, it can be an emotion. It don't mean you gotta be bored when you go to church. Sometimes people don't even tell their children. Just because you don't wanna come up here and do an activity that they ask you do you know what that means in your life and mine? When you get older, if they ask you, if the pastor or somebody asks you to do something, you'll be whining and nagging about it. And you know what? Most people don't like to be around nagging, whining Christians. I'm not talking about Christians that don't have problems, but I'm talking about people that nag and whine about absolutely nothing. And then when you start working, guess what? People don't even want to be around you at work because here come Mr. Boom Doom. He just, all he going to do is whine and nag about absolutely nothing. And I think it's very important that we let our children know, just if you don't do nothing in church, guess what's going to happen? You will be judged for that. It is a hell. And guess what? You can split hell wide open because I'm not going to be hell responsible for you for the rest of your life. I used to tell my boys this. After you leave this and you're the head of your house and you, you're the daddy, guess what? If your house go to hell, it's your fault. Hello. Because you didn't read your Bible and you wasn't faithful. And that sometimes, you know, we, we want to shelter our children. So it's, it's up to us. We will be judged. That was good. Well, we'll save the second response for next week. Okay. So sorry. Okay, so we will continue this wonderful panel discussion next week. We will be shorter with the, with the content uh, next week so that we can be sure to get in all the wise wisdom of these wonderful panel uh, members. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it that. All right. <laughs> so uh, did you want to say anything? Okay. Thank you all, all for being here. Have a blessed rest of your week, and we will see you all Sunday and next Wednesday. And Praise the Lord.